Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for the chance we have to be together, to continue to gather together um, in spite of circumstances. We thank you that we get to, to study your word and sing and pray. And, and so now as we turn to your word, we also thank you that it's practical and it means something to our lives, um, that it isn't just head and spirit, but, but that it means something practically as we live. And so we lift this time to you and ask that you would speak to us and show us what the gospel has for our lives today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in a series in the book of Romans, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Romans chapter 12 with me today. Um, if you don't, then it'll be on the screens, but if you don't own a Bible, we have some in the back, and you can take one with you as our gift to you. Um, as we jump into the text today, we're in Romans chapter 12. This is a brand new section of the letter to the Roman church, and this section is a, the, the focus shifts toward practicality. Is Christianity, is the gospel that we've seen laid out through the first 11 chapters, does it, what does it mean for us practically in life? How does this change us? It, does it change us? And is it possible to be transformed within our lives? And so in this, we have a shift now that happens, especially if you read Paul's letters to the New Testament churches. And so whether it's the church in Colossae or Ephesus or Corinth or here in Rome, there's a, a, a consistent pattern that the apostle has that he will, that shifts from the indicative to the imperative at some point in his letter. So what that means is that he'll, he starts by establishing this is the foundation of what is known to be true about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And then the imperative is, now on that foundation, how do we live? And that we need to make sure never to get that order confused, because if we do, then we'll end up thinking the way that we live impacts whether or not we can be justified in Christ, rather than saying, no, it's accomplished by Christ alone, and now here's how you live. And so chapter 12 is where it shifts in the letter to the Roman church to the imperative, to, the, to the, what this means for us in life. And it, we see in the next several weeks, we'll see that the gospel has the power to change us. And so building that context just a little bit, our text today begins with the word therefore, which if you've been around Redemption Hill for any amount of time, you know that whenever we see that word, we have to stop and see what it's there for. And so it, that is an, an indicator that, that something has just been said that's going to be applied for us. It's a cue for us. And so this, this is a transitional paragraph that we're about to read that sets up the whole rest of the letter, and really it's summarized in the first two verses of chapter 12. There's a particular focus in these last five chapters of the letter to the Romans church on relationships and how we are transformed and how the power of the gospel comes to bear on our relationships with people both inside the church and outside the church. And in fact, when we get to Romans chapter 13, it's a well-known and well-utilized passage on even how Christians interact with government. I told the church back in January, so if you're new with us today, which in the room especially, it's been encouraging and surprising how many of you are new, both in the morning and the evening. Um, as we have limitations on our gathering still, it's been encouraging that, you're, that people are checking out Redemption Hill and interested in tying in with us. Um, 
But if you weren't here in January, I told our church back in the first weekend in January that I, I thought that 2020 was going to be a difficult year and get harder as it went along. <laughs> I, I had no idea what I was saying. I'm not saying that the, I'm the, please don't think that I'm the cause of all this. But looking ahead, knowing that it was an election year, knowing that things were, the rhetoric was going to get amped up, knowing that the church was going to be only increasingly divided at large, not necessarily Redemption Hill, at the, back in January, one of the things that we talked about was that we need to have a theological foundation to know how to navigate these times. And with the goal that, before we get to the election, that it, so in October 4th and 11th, we're going to hit head-on in Romans, Christian, Christians in government, Christianity and politics. Then, as we go continue in the letter, when we get to election week, the Sunday before and after the election, we'll be in Romans chapter 14, which is on how to have unity in the church in the midst of, of sharp disagreement. And so that's where we're headed. We're on pace for that still. And so, but this, this is the section of Romans that we're in that shows the power of the gospel. So all of Romans is built toward this point. The first four chapters are the heart of the gospel, that we are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ, and that that is the only hope we have. And then chapters five to eight are the assurance of the gospel, that it's true and that God actually loves us. And then it moves in chapters nine to 11, which are controversial chapters, but it's actually about the unity of the gospel and the unity of the church in light of what Christ has done for us. And so now we begin to see that the, the power of the gospel to change us. Um, these first two verses, there's a, there's a famous British preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached 10 sermons out of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. We're going to try to cover the first eight verses today in one go. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to say here. And, and um, within this, the big idea that we have today is that following Jesus is, in all of life, whole self-endeavor. It takes everything that we are. And so if you really believe the theology that's been established up to this point, if you really believe, like it says in chapter 3, that, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, if you really believe what it says in chapter 5, that, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that in chapter 6, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, free, is life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ, that, that we are promised that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's been shown to us in him. And then when we get to the end of chapter 11, where we ended last week, when we saw this explosion of worship come from this difficult theology of, of how God chooses his people, and Paul ends the chapter by saying, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so all of this leads into chapter 12. We can't forget that foundation as we begin it. But this is what we read in Romans 12, 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, 
to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as, it, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in exhorting, or in, his, in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so again, the big idea today is that following Jesus is a whole self, all of life endeavor. It takes everything that we are. And so within that, as we, as we look at where true transformation comes from and real change in our lives can come from, there are five observations that we have from the text today, and they all start with the letter S. So five S's as we look at transformation today. But before we even get to the first one, we see right off the bat that Paul is concerned that we don't leave behind the foundation that's been established, because look where he begins. I appeal to you, therefore, so in light of every, all of this, Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present yourselves this way. He's saying there's a foundation that God has shown us his mercy. And so as Martin Luther, the reformer, says here, without our efforts at all, Christ offers himself to us as our righteousness, our peace, and our rest for conscience in order that we may always build upon this foundation our good works. So again, Luther is saying it's important here to remember there's a foundation of God's mercy that then impacts how we live, and let's not get it reversed. So the first S is sacrifice. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a whole self, all of life endeavor? First is sacrifice. And there's three ways that it's described here. It's a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, this is interesting language, right? A living sacrifice. We, it, most of us haven't experienced actual sacrificial systems, but Paul's audience in the first century had. Whether it was Jewish people, would have been, they would have experienced temple worship, which included animal sacrifices. Otherwise, pagan temples, whether, whether Romans or Greeks, they experienced this all the time, that sacrifices were made to various deities in various temples. And so they knew that after you offer a sacrifice, the sacrifice doesn't go on living. That's not how it works. But what Paul is saying here is that, that it, it, to follow Christ, what it means that we are constantly, ongoing, and actively, for our lifetimes, living self-sacrificially. That our sacrifice is called to be holy. That means that if you follow Jesus, you have been set apart by God for his purposes, and that your life will be acceptable and honoring to Christ. And so what this is not a call to is to earn our justification before God, but or to try to make atonement for ourselves. Jesus did that work. He is the one who was offered in our place for our sin, but... This is the, the same language that Jesus uses when he tells, describes to his disciples what it means to follow him. Right after Peter identified that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the Son of God, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he's saying this is what it means to follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
So Jesus isn't calling his followers here to selflessness, but he's calling them to self-sacrifice. And every Christian, every follower of Christ is called to the same. I think this is difficult for us to grasp because there's very little that we do in our lives that is a whole self-endeavor. Um, probably 20, 25 years ago, there was an adolescent psychologist named David Elkind. He wrote a book called All Grown Up and No Place to Go. And he described a phenomenon at the time that was what he was observing in adolescence. I would say this is wide, broad, broad cultural scale at this point, that he described as the patchwork self. And what he was describing is that, that we actually have divides within us that it's hard to find a central identity of who we are because we have a tendency to break up our identity dependent on the circumstances and the people, the relationships that we're around. What that means is that you might be a different person when you're at work versus when you're at home, when you're with friends versus when you're with family or parents or church friends or work friends or rec league friends or roommates. That it, what this means is that you just might present your life differently on social media than the reality that you actually live. That we have carefully curated lives in what we put out there publicly, but it doesn't actually represent the fullness of who we are. And so if you live in this divided patchwork self, it's gonna make it difficult for you ever to have a central identity, and it's gonna actually diminish your humanity and your ability to live self-sacrificially. Because any area that gets touched isn't gonna to touch the whole. So, what God calls us to, what Christ calls us to, and, and is that we would come after him and give up everything else. Every, prior, every other priority, every other pursuit would be put on the altar for him, and that if we lose everything, then we may actually gain life in him. That's what Paul calls us to here in Romans 12, to say, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship, and it's your bodies. So Christianity is not disembodied. It's not Gnostic of just saying it's escapism and, and intellectual, and it's saying, no, everything that you are has been called by God. Everything you are is being redeemed and renewed and restored, and this is your worship, is to offer your entire life as a sacrifice. Tim Keller, who was a pastor in Manhattan, said, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in, in any area of life, and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in, in any area of life. So here, Keller is able to break down very clearly and rationally. For me, it was more helpful to hear from Dr. Tony Evans here. He said, this is the difference between what a chicken and a pig bring to a bacon and egg breakfast. The chicken makes a contribution. The pig gives everything. What we often do with God is give an egg here and an egg there, but God wants sa sacrifice, the ham and the bacon. Only total surrender will be called true worship. And so this is the question. With your relationship with God, as you pursue spirituality, is Jesus just something where you want to make a contribution here or a contribution there, or have you put yourself wholly at his disposal? Have you given yourself over wholly to what God would have for you? Following Jesus takes everything that we are. It's a whole self, all of life endeavor, and so it takes sacrifice. Second, we'll be reshaped. And so it's sacrifice and shape. 
This is what we see in in verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so he's talking about the molds that we get pushed into here, that, that there are forces around us and circumstances around us that shape our lives for good and for bad, that every one of us, the relationships we have, the, the activities we are, are a part of, the, everything we do has a shaping effect on us. I can remember when I was a kid, and I don't know if they have a better system for this now, but I can remember every year, I mean, it's, it's football season again, I promise you that if the Bears lose a few games, I'll stop talking about it. But if they win, it's just going to get worse. Um, and so I can remember as a kid, though, that when, I, when I played football, that every year I would get a mouth guard. And if you tried to wear these plastic mouth guards unshaped and unformed, unmolded, they would like cut into your cheeks and into your gums, and it, you had to mold them. And so I don't know if this is the way you're supposed to do it, but I can remember the way my dad did it for me is he had a pot of water simmer, simmering on the stove, maybe not quite a boil, and then he would dip this plastic mouth guard into the boiling water and then say, okay, open up and bite down. And I had to bite down on this scalding piece of plastic in my mouth and like suck the water out through my teeth so that it would mold to my teeth. And it was miserable. It was like the worst part of the football. Hitting what didn't bother me. I liked that part of the game. I could go without a mouth guard my entire life because of that experience. But without that, you had to do it because it molded it to your mouth. Um, if, you ever worked, if you've ever worked construction, and uh, I've worked con- pouring concrete in college, it's hard work, but you have to create a mold and a form and make sure you tamp out the concrete so that there aren't gaps and air bubbles within it so that it's a strong form, but it gets molded to whatever shape you pour it into and will hold that shape for support and strength. Or maybe you like baking. We all know that how this works too because even if you don't like baking, you like Christmas cookies and they are almost always shaped like different things because we can roll out the sugar cookie dough on a countertop and press the cookie cutters into it to shape and to mold the cookies over time. See, we, we know intrinsically that they're, how molds work. What's amazing is how much we overlook the forces that mold and shape us. Every one of us. What is the first thing that you do in the morning? What's the first thing your mind goes to? What's the last thing you do at night as you're laying in bed? What are the practices of your week, physically, mentally, vocationally, in relationships? how does your week look and how is it structured and how proactive versus reactive are you? And, and what are, all of this is going to have a shaping influence on you. How much time do you spend on the, the glowing rectangle that sits in your pocket? And that's going to have a shaping influence on you. Sundays are the worst because screen time, which is the best and worst creation that Apple has had, every Sunday morning it sends me a little message. Do you get this too? Every Sunday, where it's on Sunday mornings, that's what I wake up to is, you know, once I've brushed my teeth and gotten a cup of coffee and I'm getting ready and trying to go and get ready to preach, and as I do, I'll pick up my phone and it'll say, your screen time was up or down this percent this past week, and I feel like I'm getting shamed on my way to (laughs) to prepare a sermon every Sunday. But it, it has a shaping influence on us. What do you do for recreation? Do you understand that, that the word recreation is to, re, is to have a recreative power in your life, to be renewing and restoring to who you are, not just to go and have fun, but to renew and restore your soul? What do you do for that? 
Everything we do has a shaping influence. Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, and in that she says, a sign, a sign hangs on a wall in a new monastic Christian community house that says everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways, but what I'm slowly seeing is that you can't get the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff and get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. So you want to see your life changed? Do you want to see transformation in your life? I think most of us do. I don't, I don't think most of us came in here today thinking, I'm going to church so that I can continue on with nothing different. I think we, we generally come and say, I want to hear from God, and, and I know that there are some things that I want to see changing in my life. Well, get, what is the liturgy that your life reflects? And are you doing the quiet, the small, the repetitive, so that God's spirit can take root within you? See, if we are given wholly to what God is doing, we'll be reshaped. Our minds will be renewed and we'll start to think in the mindset of a coming kingdom that, has, that we have not yet attained. And so there's sacrifice, there's shape, and third, sensibilities. Our sensibilities are, re, are renewed and restored. This is the end of verse two, that be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so if you are wholly given to Christ, your sensibilities will change. That means your, your, mental, your capa mental capacity and your capacity for distinctions in what's happening around you, and you will be able to discern God's will. That's the promise here. And again, something that I think all of us would like to be able to know. And it's three describing words, just like in sacrifices, that sacrifices are living and holy and acceptable to God. Here, God's will is good and acceptable and perfect or complete. And so do you see this promise? Give yourself wholly to Christ. Live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your act of worship. And what happens is you will be no longer shaped into the, into the molds of this world around us, but instead shaped and renewed and restored in the image and likeness of Christ, and your sensibilities will change so that you will be able to understand the fullness of God's will for you. Now, I think when we think about this, again, we think about what is God's will for me. If, if you were to ask, if we had the chance to sit down tonight, or if you come up to me afterward tonight, and we had the chance to sit down and ask this question, what is God's will for me? What is the question that you would like to know? I think for most, most often when I have that conversation with somebody as a pastor, the people are coming to me wanting to know things like, should I move out of DC? And the answer is no, you should not. Plenty of people have done that over the last several months and you should stay. It's okay, if God wants you somewhere else, you, you can be free to go. But we, we couch those kinds of decisions in all kinds of God language. When at times, maybe it's God's will for you, maybe it's just the desires that you have and you just wanna live somewhere else or you just want to stay in DC, that's fine. Let's be honest with our language. 
Otherwise, it might be you know, a relationship. You're getting, you, know, you would like to be in a relationship or you are getting serious in a relationship. You don't know if it's God's will to pursue that relationship and, and it can get scary to know. Like if I, if I marry the wrong person, what's gonna go wrong? And I'm at a fork in the road in this relationship where I have to decide to be in or out. And, or, or maybe it's a job and you think, I, I have this job opportunity and I wanna know God's will and if I take it, is that gonna be the wrong thing? Or a college decision or it, it could be any, any number of these things, but typically when we think about God's will for our lives, we think about that in terms of decisions as if if you choose one college over another, you're gonna put yourself outside of God's will for you. There's nothing in the New Testament to back that up. Or as if if you choose to marry somebody, you might get it wrong and have the wrong spouse for your life. That's now, biblically, marriage is a commitment to live self-sacrificially to see another person flourish for the rest of your life. You make that choice to love somebody that way, you're not going to get it wrong. And so here is, we don't have to like reach very far to understand what the good and the acceptable and the complete will of God is for us. It's, it's shown to us in what follows in Romans 12 to 16, that God's will for us has impact on the way that we live as we are shaped into the image of Christ and it bleeds into every relationship in our lives. The way that we treat the people around us is the way that we will see and practice God's will for us. And so it's about lifestyle and ethic and relationships more than about these big decisions that we think about. And this discernment of how God would have us act in everyday situations is what is the practice of faith. And so in this, you know, we need to remember that we, we have the foundation of God's mercies, but, but then when we get to, the, look at the next verse in verse 3, this is the explanation, so you'll be able to discern what is the will of God. The explanation for, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but with sober judgment. And it goes on then to talk about life and community, and it goes on in the end of chapter 12, what we'll see um, next, in the next time we, we study this, that it goes on to talk about, what, about the mark of the Christian is love, to pray for your enemies, to, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to be patient in tribulation. This is the will of God for those who follow Christ, is to live in a way that reflects that we follow Christ. And so if, as we are given our, our whole self as an all of life endeavor to follow Jesus, if we are living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, all in to honor God with our lives, it, it will reshape our lives and our sensibilities will change so that we will be able to see how to love our neighbor in every circumstance so that it, it, God is more concerned with how you're going to treat the person you live next to than what that addresses. God is more concerned in the way that you are going to reflect the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the college you go to than he is with which particular college it is. We are part of the renewal and restoration of all things. We, have, we, we think that we have a big idea of when we want to know God's will, but actually mo most of those decisions are very small in the large scope of things, and the things that we think of as being small are massive in the kingdom. And so within this, I know it can get frustrating too, but remember that you're on a journey. This is the practice of faith. You're not there yet, so be patient, but look to Jesus. He is the one who has done these things perfectly for us. And so following Jesus, it's whole self, all of life. It'll have sacrifice, shape, sensibilities, and forth. It leads to sobriety. 
This is the verse three that I already read. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And Paul is saying, if you're, if you're doing this if, this, if you actually believe everything that's come before this, this is going to lead to an element of sobriety and humility when you look at yourself. Most of chapter 11 is a rebuke on pride. It's a rebuke on self-righteousness for the religious and pride for those who don't have a religious background. And Paul's saying those things divide the church. And so here he's expanding that even more, saying, okay, if, you're, if you've actually been saved by Jesus, then, then what you're saying is that, that God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, then it's impossible to hold that as truth theologically and come out on the other side with pride over someone else that hasn't realized it the same way that you have yet. Because what you're saying is, I contributed nothing. I was still a sinner, an enemy of God, and he saved me through Jesus. That doesn't have anything to do with us. That's everything, everything to do with what he has done for us. And so if we believe that, it's going to lead us to a sobriety and a humility toward ourselves because it's hard to get puffed up. But we need this reminder regularly, which is why I think he gets to according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there's two major ways that we can interpret that phrase. And there's a lot of ink spilled about this interpretive decision because it's important. What does it mean? What is the measure of faith that Paul is talking about here? He uses it again just a couple of verses later. I don't know if you caught that when we read through it, but particularly with the gift of prophecy, which is an interesting one. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But in the gift of prophecy, he says too, if you have have the gift of prophecy, use it in proportion to our faith. And so what is that? The measure, the proportion, that's the same language used here between these two. And and, and it's, it's saying something. So there's two basic options that we have. The first option is I think functionally how many Christians live that this is a subjective understanding of the amount of faith that we have. And so for some of you, that's so natural in the way that you live and have experienced things that it's hard for you to even understand what a second option might be. But let me explain it for a moment. This would say that some people are gifted with more faith than others, and so we need to have the faith to be able to have sobriety as we look at ourselves in order to gain humility. And this, if we take it subjectively this way, then when it comes to prophecy, then we would understand that, pro- that we need to really believe the things we're saying and be confident of them if we're going to say them. So that would be a subjective way. Another way is that this is objective. And this is where I land. So my cards are going to be on the table as I explain it. An objective look at this would say the measure of faith isn't different from person to person. What Paul is saying here is you need to keep a humble perspective on yourself and keep a sober mindset on yourself because, and if, if, if you're struggling with that, then remember the faith that you believe. Remember what the gospel is and what that says about you. You are made in the image and likeness of God and worthy of dignity and honor and, and respect. Yes and amen. And you are on your own horribly fallen without hope apart from Christ. And, and so the only hope we have is in Jesus, and that obliterates our pride. Our call from Jesus isn't to be better and greater and, and smarter. The call from Jesus is give up everything to follow me. You could gain the whole world and lose your soul. But, but, you're, but we're called to constant sacrifice. And so here I think Paul is calling us to say, 
Don't get puffed up as you grow in faith. Don't get proud as you, as you are changed. You see God at work in your life. Stay humble. And how? Because the gospel keeps us humble. It keeps everything in perspective. It keeps us sober-minded. It, it makes sure that what we are, when we are celebrating anything, what we are celebrating is that Christ was crucified for us. So that like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we can say, listen, I'm only going to boast in my weaknesses because those are the things that show the power of Christ more clearly. And, 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 and so here there's an objective measure, I believe, to say that we have to look to the measure that Christ was crucified for us and the cost of our sin, and that will help us keep perspective on ourselves and our gifts and our role in God's story, that we are a part of his work in renewing and restoring and redeeming all things. And so sobriety is the fourth mark, and that leads to the fifth is service. Sacrifice, shape, sensibilities, sobriety, and service. I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's inconsequential that the first two relationships that Paul gets to in applying the gospel on the back part of the book of Romans first talks about a relationship with God and then with his people, the church. And so that's what it goes into immediately, is that every member of the church matters. Every person has a part to play. Everyone is a member of one body. And God has, has given us this one body with many members, and the members don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He's saying we have been joined together in this body of Christ. Jesus is the head, and we together have different functions and different roles and different giftedness and different passions and personalities, and, and that is a good and glorious thing. And so the members of the body can't be divided biblically. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about this too and, and pushes this metaphor even a little further and says, listen, when one member of your body hurts, the rest of the body hurts with it. And we know that to be true. When we have something that's wrong physically, it impacts our lives. When you're dealing with pain physically, it impacts your life. And so in the church, when somebody in the church is hurting, it impacts us. And the reason that, that we often, I mean, even today, Pastor Chewy prayed for, for people outside of Redemption Hill and outside of our city is because it, it hurts to see people and to know, and when we know people especially, but, but also to know that there are other people who are part of our family that are suffering in these places, it has an impact on us, even from a global perspective. And, but within the church, there are so many forces that are working to divide us or lift up different body parts as being more important. And Paul here is affirming, no, everybody's got a part to play in this. In 1 Corinthians 12, again, he says, and actually the, the stuff that's behind the scenes might be the most important. We don't know what God is, is most concerned with, but it's probably not the things that we are. But every member is called to be a part of that body. There's no concept in the New Testament for someone being a follower of Jesus as an individual and not being tied to a community of people to work out their, their faith in, in life and in practice together. And so he starts working his way through various gifts. And this isn't an exhaustive list. He says, we have different gifts and according to the grace given to us. And so let's use them. Serve with your gifts if it's prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now again, here, I don't think he's saying that this is subjective, that, 
and this gets into a discussion of what the gift of prophecy is. And so let me just briefly say, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's defined for us that, that prophecy is when somebody comes in, their, their hearts are called to account, the secrets of their hearts are disclosed, and so falling on their face, they will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So prophecy is a word that someone has to speak to another person that exposes their hearts and draws them to worship Jesus. It's a part of, of conviction and redemption. And so here, when Paul says, if it's prophecy, he's saying that some of you are particularly gifted in this way. If you have that gift, use it in proportion to the faith. Now again, I don't think he's saying, use it if you're really convinced that what you're saying is true, because that could lead to all kinds of craziness. I think what he's saying is, use it in proportion to the faith. That anything you say has to be in alignment with the gospel. Every, anything you say has to be in alignment with the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished because prophecy is not just about being a jerk and convicting people of their sin. That's easy to do. It's, it's used by God to redeem and renew and restore broken people. And so he goes on. That prophecy, then use it in proportion to our faith. If it's service, then in serving. If it's one who teaches, then in teaching. If it's one who exhorts, or challenges people, then to their exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So you hear what he's saying here is whatever God has given you and called you to and given you opportunity for within the body of the church, your life and experience toward God's people is transformed the more that you follow Jesus and the more engaged you are in building up the body of Christ and, and being a part of his work among his people. And so within this, 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 sums, this really sums up and gets to the core of all of these other things. Is it's living self-sacrificially for the good of those around you and to love that well within the family of faith. This leads to a question that just real briefly about how do we discover our gifts? Have you ever taken one of those spiritual gifts inventories? It's kind of like a personality test, except for what your spiritual gifts are. Those, those might be helpful. My experience is that that usually gets people into the things that they want to be gifted in. And you, know, you, don't, get, you don't always get the inaccurate look at things. I think the way to discover your gifts is to be a part of a church and respond to the needs of the church. And when needs rise up, to go and try to fulfill them. You might discover along the way that you're not gifted for ministry, but, but I, I think that when, again, when we think about spiritual gifts, we think about spiritual gifts as being a part of a pathway to our own self-discovery. What am I good at, and how do I unlock my potential before God? Biblically, when it talks about gifts, I think it's much more, it's much closer to reality to say there will be needs that arise within the church, and the Spirit of God will equip some of you to meet those needs whether or not you realize that you can do it. And, and so we need to shift our thinking on these things. Because if we look at it the first way, as spiritual gifts as a pathway to self-realization and self-discovery, then we will never serve in any capacity because every, anything that's hard will go, I'm just not really gifted at that. You don't have to be very gifted to do set up and tear down in a, in a church. I love our set up and tear down team. That's no shade on them. We need them. And it's gotten easier for us. We used to like have to set up whole sound systems and things, and so there used to actually be requirements where we would actually say, 
please, you need to be a certain size and strength if you're going to be on the Setup and Teardown team because we had some very eager, small people trying to lift speakers. And we had to say, this just isn't probably for you right now. Right now, it's like setting up communion. And so, you know, that's, that's an opportunity to serve. But yeah, you might discover along the way that you're not gifted for something. It's easy to say, I'm not really gifted with kids. Have you tried working with our kids' ministry? They do great training. They'll do a background check on you to make sure that everybody up, up working with our kids, when we're able to do that again, obviously we can't right now. But they're great at helping you get into that. If you're a single guy who would like to impress the young women of our church and you're not serving in our kids' ministry, I don't know what you're thinking. Um, but, be, I mean, guys, this is an easy thing to do. And you might get up there and, real, and, and realize, I'm no good at this. And that's fine. Then we'd like you to stop. Um, for the sake of our kids so that they have a fun environment when they come in. But you might be, su be surprised. Greeting. Really what you have to be able to do to be a greeter is smile and be welcoming to people. So it may be that some of you try out being a greeter and we gently have to say, people think you're angry and won't come into the church and so we're going to have you do setup team. Um, but it could be that you really enjoy it and you get to know people. You have to try things in order to figure this out and the way to un un discover what the spirit of God is gifting you for is to be a part of a church and start serving in some capacity. Now within this though there is like a sweet spot that you'll discover over time that you'll have areas of passion. And if you're serving in an area of passion, then serving will be more life-giving than life-draining. And so, yeah, we, in membership interviews, we always ask, what are you passionate about? What are the things you enjoy doing most? And when that intersects with needs in the church and skill sets that you've developed, when those three things come together, that's a sweet spot of, of opportunity that has a real impact. And so the, the only way to find that, though, is to actually get involved and do stuff. And so within that, this is part of what it means to follow Christ, to be a part of his body and contributing to the work within the church. And so today, things turn practical for us. And in the coming weeks, it's going to continue to be super practical. The next passage that we have looks at, at really how the gospel impacts every relationship around us and changes the way we approach other people because everybody bears God's image and likeness. Then, like I said, we're going to see how it, it impacts our approach to government, and we're going to see how it impacts our approach to living in the midst of dark times. We're going to see how it impacts our approach to unity and disagreement and how we weigh different issues of morals and ethics within the church. We're going to continue to walk through these because this section of Romans shows us that the gospel of Jesus Christ really has the power to change your life. And, and it, it, has the, it has the power to give you a greater capacity to love, the, the power to, to take your patchwork self and give you an identity that brings everything together into a whole, to make you actually more human with a greater capacity to love and self-sacrifice and humility, to be a part of contributing and working toward what God is doing in advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ and renewing and restoring all things. That doesn't mean it's easy, though. It's hard, it's costly to follow Jesus, but he's the only hope that we have for wholeness and renewal. And so if we're going to follow Jesus as an, a whole self, all of life endeavor, then what we're called to in the text today is sacrifice and a new shape, new sensibilities, a sobriety about ourselves and service in, within his people. But this is the great hope we have, is what we've been seeing all the way through Romans. Every one of us is messed up on our own. 
We've all fallen short. Every one of us has earned sin on our own, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and has given us life and hope, and we're part of the restoration of all things. And so if you're not a Christian, this is what Christianity is about. You can turn to Jesus today and you'll be welcomed by God into a new family and saved and forgiven. If you are a Christian, stop playing around. Like Tony Evans said, which are you gonna be, the chicken or the pig? Are you gonna bring a contribution and a little peace or are you willing to go in with everything that you are? Let's pray together. And Father, we need your help in this because it's, it's hard to trust that we can give everything we are. We want it to be transactional. We read about a return on our investment. So would you help us? Would you help us to trust that your word is true, that we really can have hope in Christ And would you help us, renew us and restore us so that we can move on the foundation of confidence in the truth of the gospel, that it's worth it to offer ourselves wholly as living sacrifices to you. And thank you for the work you continue to do in our lives and in our church. And we pray that you would help us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.